We're really pleased to have all of you here today for this event on oil and gas engagement on climate change. Uh, this is an issue that we've been working on for a little over a year and a half. Um, it is one of those issues that we get asked about on a near daily basis, and so we decided to do a little bit of research to uh, look at some of the ways in which oil and gas companies are uh, engaging on the issue of climate change and offer some thoughts about why they're doing that and, uh, and, and ways to think about what more could be done on that front. And so it's not a comprehensive report, but it is certainly one that we hope will spark additional conversation and for us will, in fact, uh, spark some future work that I'll talk about uh, towards the end of the session. I am really pleased. Uh, to have with us today uh, three panelists who are going to sort of have a conversation after I do a brief uh, uh, overview of uh, what we said in the report just to spark some discussion. Uh, and we've got uh, with us today Tracy Cameron, who is the Senior Manager for Corporate Climate Engagement at Ceres. So thanks for coming, Tracy. Uh, and David Victor, uh, oh, sorry, Ethan, who's next to her, Ethan Zindler, who's the head of the Americas for Bloomberg NEF. Did I get the branding right? Good, okay. Uh, and also a senior associate here at CSIS. Uh, and then David Victor, who's a professor of international relations at the School of Global Policy and Strategy and director of the Laboratory in International Law and Regulation at UC San Diego, and also a non-resident senior associate here at CSIS. So thank you guys for spending your time with us today. Um, really quickly, one of my obligations here is to make sure that if there's some sort of uh, incident, uh, emergency-wise, that you know how to get out of the building. So uh, if something happens, a big voice comes uh, from above and tells you we need to evacuate, please just listen to me. Uh, I will make sure that you get out of here, but just in the meantime, be aware of your emergency exits, which are behind us. They'll take you to a staircase, which takes you to an alley, which takes you out to the street, and then you can make your own decisions about what we do, or uh, I can sort of help you uh, figure out how to get back into the building. We don't expect that to happen, but it is my obligation to, um, to let you know that we, uh, we, we do think about those things. So um, I want to talk a little bit about why we did this project. Um, like I said, you know, I've been doing this for about 15 years now, largely see climate change as the largest strategic issue facing the oil and gas industry today. Uh, and I don't mean that just in terms of on the emissions reduction side of the equation. I also eventually meet on the climate impact side of the equation uh, as well, which we haven't done work on in this report, but I certainly think it's an important issue to pay attention to. Um, there's a great deal of pressure and focus uh, on what oil and gas uh, companies are doing. And so, like I said, we decided to put together a project where we did our own analysis of what we thought they were doing uh, and ways to sort of engage in that conversation. So what we did is we did some research uh, on not only uh, some of the projects we chose to focus on sort of the technological side of their activity, um, some of the strategies that they were employing, some of the technologies that are being invested in, and then also some of the different ways that different stakeholders are viewing that kind of action uh, uh, along the way. Um, and so this report covers those issues, essentially. Why are they taking action? How much do they contribute to the problem? What are some of the unique uh, characteristics of how they have to deal with uh, their contribution to, to climate change? And then what are they doing to act so far? And then what's working, what isn't working, uh, those sorts of things. So just to talk about the first one, as many of you know, oil and gas companies are basically responding to the environment around them, an environment where there's increasing market-based mechanisms for them to uh, internally price uh, 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 carbon emissions and other sort of environmental uh, pollutants. Um, there's a shift in the view of subsidies where there's a you know international push to increase support for things like renewable and clean energy technologies in order to deploy them and also drive down what we see in, in sort of fossil fuel subsidies. Fossil fuel subsidies still receive more, um, but there's really sort of a, a, in a, a push to sort of reconcile 
uh, uh, which technologies we're supporting versus which ones we're not. And then finally, you have an increasing level of mandates, whether it's targets or goals or incentives, whether they're actually uh, embedded in regulation or not. Uh, there's a lot of different places in which uh, companies are operating where there's a clear policy signal that um, increasingly low carbon energy supplies are going to be uh, what is supported by policy objectives. Um, there's also the competitiveness factor, right? So this looks at lo the levelized cost of electricity, which is just one proxy for all the different ways in which we're seeing um, the cost of clean energy technology and uh, renewable energy technology in particular dropping. Uh, that doesn't get at all the costs of integrating these technologies into, uh, into energy systems, but quite frankly, we can talk about uh, these things now because we've dropped the cost so precipitously. So uh, I think that increasingly oil and gas companies see a competitive future for themselves vis-a-vis -vis these technologies, not only in the power generation side, but also in terms of transportation. There's also investor pressure, and so uh, Tracy's going to talk a little bit more about this, but this is a look at all of the different shareholder resolutions up to between 2015 and 2018 uh, that, uh, that, uh, that uh, oil and gas companies faced. I think a really big takeaway here is, uh, one, the variety of actions that they, uh, they sort of targeted over that period of time. It's not just you know, some sort of vague thing. It's sort of, you know, covering political activity and carbon asset risk and uh, things like methane emissions and hydraulic fracturing. So there's a real variety in what they're facing. And then also, if you look at sort of the withdrawn and failed sort of categories there, I think the, the point here is not to gauge how many of these investor resolutions led to, uh, were, were successful investor resolutions, but a lot of them sparked negotiation and conversation between investors and companies. And I think that that's been uh, something that's really uh, motivated a lot of the strategic thinking within some of the companies that we reviewed. Um, we, uh, so while there's a lot of different companies who are sort of engaging in this issue of climate change and thinking about uh, the fact that they have to deal with climate change, not all of them are the same, uh, both in terms of the approach that they're taking right now and in terms of how they think about this as a challenge. So, for example, some of the companies and most of the ones we're going to talk about today are the ones who are either embarking on a broad strategy, which is having a vision for the future of your company that involves a transition to a lower carbon energy future. We can talk about what that means. Um, there's some companies who are a little bit more constrained than that. They think about technology-led uh, um, uh, technology change. They're not sure what it means for their company, but they're certainly investing in different technologies to learn more. There are companies that are just limited in their investment capacity. They're just not that big. They're not the international oil companies, and so they don't have nearly as much to invest. Um, there's things like state-owned enterprises. We did not cover uh, state-owned enterprises in this project, but we did, uh, through a journal article with Morgan Bazilian from the Payne Institute, publish some research on what national oil companies are doing as well, so you can check that out too. And then finally, there's some folks that are just not engaged, right, for whom, you know what, a seriously low-carbon future is an existential threat. They have a short-term line of sight on these things. They don't necessarily get engaged. Uh, and so to talk about what the oil and gas industry is doing is sort of a little too short of a shorthand. You really have to talk about who you're talking about, which segment of the industry are you talking about, and how do they fit sort of within this strategic outlook. So how much do oil and gas companies contribute to the problem, and what's sort of unique about their, uh, their contributions? So if you look, this is just a breakdown of uh, global greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, if you look in the oil and gas industry side, 32% of global greenhouse gas emissions coming from the oil and gas industry, we're just sort of paring this down to show you where analytically we were sort of focusing on, which is IOCs. And so if you look at a huge portion of oil and gas emissions actually come from the combustion of the product, right, how we use it. 
Uh, and then other uh, oil and gas producers have that smaller wedge, and then the IOCs have like kind of a small uh, portion of that wedge. This is another way of looking at that. So if you look at the um, uh, oil and gas companies that we took a look at, who we sort of viewed as having maybe the most advanced strategies for thinking about technology deployment within the oil and gas space, uh, and, and sort of the climate change strategy space, they only make up about 13% of global oil and gas production and about 7.7% of emissions, right? So they're not, a, it's not like if you get these companies to change, everybody changes. There could be some knock-on effects from how they uh, in, invest and in, in take on climate change, but it's not necessarily going to precipitate uh, to every, you know, every industry. Um, and this gets really sort of complicated, but, you know, when you think about scope three emissions, Scope 3 emissions in the oil and gas industry are sort of similar to what they are in other industries, but the, but the main sort of differentiator is if you look at um, where in the Scope 3 bucket of emissions their, their emissions actually come from, it, for technology-based companies or pharmaceutical-based companies, a lot of it comes from uh, sort of the products of goods and the, the production of goods and services that go into uh, uh, the use of their products. For the oil and gas industry, it's the products themselves that are the problem, right? It's the it's the use of what they sell that cause the emissions, and therefore the way to be able to reduce your scope three emissions is to try and figure out a way that people don't you have emissions associated with what you're doing, uh, and so that makes it to be kind of like a unique challenge. Uh, for the industry, and I think we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, so what are companies doing to take action, and how do stakeholders regard that action? We basically started with the, the how people are regarding things first. So um, one class of people that think about what oil and gas companies are doing in terms of uh, engaging on climate change is the investor class, the equity investor class. And so we just picked out two reports that basically, uh, one from JP Morgan and one from uh, Goldman Sachs, that looked at what is the you know, sort of normal community that thinks about the value of these companies doing to look at their strategies and say, how does that affect how I value that company, right? And so uh, on the JP Morgan side of the equation, it was sort of an interesting calculation they made about you know, your portfolio sustainability, and that's not how sustainable is your portfolio from an environmental perspective. Is, is it going to, are you gonna be able to produce the oil and gas that you say you're going to be able to produce? Um, so how sustainable is your portfolio? And then what's your cash break-evens and, and your buybacks plus dividends, your sort of financial side of the house? But that middle part is you know, some new things we're seeing about how do we value or how do we approximate the sort of environmental performance of you as a company, right? And so carbon footprint versus your energy diversification or upstream flaring intensity, portfolio changes out to 2025, all these different metrics that you're starting to see arise within the financial community for thinking about how to evaluate that. Goldman Sachs basically said, you know, we see broadly that there's a transition from big oils to big energy, and largely they're on track to be able to do that by using these um, strategies to deal with their scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions, but they only sort of looked out over a next decade time frame and said anything beyond that is really difficult to evaluate, which is a really hard conversation to have in a climate context because it really does matter sort of out beyond 10 years what you're doing. So this is one look at sort of how some of these sort of investor communities are taking a look at what some of the strategies are in the different companies, and they do rate the companies by these things and make evaluations based on that. Um, another one is a very is sort of famous one is just looking at the share of CapEx that's going towards clean energy technology. And this is CDP uh, that does this on a, uh, on a, a sort of an annual basis. This is actually their last year's approximation. So we've had a number of companies say, no, 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 our CapEx contribution to clean energy technology is higher this year. Um, again, 
like in dollar terms, this is real money. Uh, in percentage of overall capital investment, it doesn't look like a huge share. And so I think one of the things that led us to doing the work we're doing um, is to look at whether or not the, mo the money that's being invested in these technologies is actually having any sort of effect in actually creating new technological frontiers or new business models or those types of things. Um, there's another perspective, which is the carbon budget perspective, uh, which is you know this idea basically that there's only so many emissions uh, out there that we ha can spend, uh, and that we need to think about what the oil and gas industry is doing in the context of that carbon budget. Uh, and so Carbon Tracker does a lot of reports that um, try and approximate that uh, that perspective on sort of the oil and gas industry and say, hey, listen, there's only so much that you can do. I think this, this conversation has evolved as well from being this broad idea of there being a carbon bubble or sort of a, a carbon budget out there that we need to adhere to, to one that very specifically says, here's, we want to put some analytics around like what are the assets you can invest in and not invest in and all of those types of things. So I think this is another perspective that's out there certainly that, that companies are aware of and, and uh, it motivates a lot of sort of uh, the decision making and thinking about how do we communicate on how our assets that we're investing in are on the oil and gas side of the equation may continue to be competitive long term. So our approach, what did we do? We just decided to take a look at those companies that I told you about before, so you'll see them at the top there, and say, what are they doing? What are they investing in, and what can we see? And one of the big problems is you can't see everything, right? Because some of this is regarded as being sort of competitively you know, uh, uh, sourced. And so, But we did take a look at what they're doing, and you can start to see that there are some areas of convergence. One is on carbon capture and sequestration, obviously something that I think a lot of people recognize as potentially being in the wheelhouse technologically and sort of interest-wise of the oil and gas community. So most of the companies across the board doing something on CCS. Um, most of the companies doing something on uh, public EV charging, uh, and, uh, and then you're starting to see some other areas of interest. Not a whole lot on the sort of the manufacturing side of the equation, sort of manufacturing new energy technologies. Some of them are starting to generate uh, uh, energy from things like uh, solar and wind and, and those types of things. Um, and then not a whole lot in terms of um, uh, well, and it, sorry. So, and then you're starting to see that some companies have a sort of a, a broad-based portfolio approach. They invest in a lot of different kinds of technologies and opportunities, whereas some companies are really sort of focused on uh, on fewer of them. Um, you can't really see the map there, but I think you get the gist. But uh, a lot of the projects are concentrated mostly in the United States and Europe. This is one of the things that we think might change over time uh, as we're seeing a lot of companies sort of uh, try and think about deploying these kinds of clean energy technologies or, or uh, uh, solutions in different um, areas where they're involved. But so far, the, the, the activity has really been in sort of the US and, and Europe, where I think, quite frankly, if that's where a lot of investor pressure is coming from, that makes uh, some sense as well. Um, then a lot of, uh, we saw a little bit of differentiation on sort of whether companies were invested in projects rather than subsidiaries. And so some companies uh, seem to have a preference to invest in projects. This is not showing the overall level of investment, it's just by number, so there could be huge uh, differences if you actually did the dollar quantities for these investments. But basically, some companies are interested in investing in companies, and some companies are, invested, are interested in investing in projects, and some do a little bit of both. And so we just took a look at uh, the evolution of that over time. 
So oil and gas companies tend to think about things in these three levels. Uh, this is not, all of these companies do all three of these things. So don't think of them as being in one of these categories. But we thought of them for our own analytical purposes as being in three different levels. Level one is like, what are you doing to deal with your operational emissions, right? When you're producing oil and gas, like, what is it that you're doing to reduce your emissions? And so there's some examples of some of the things that companies are doing. The second is, what are you doing to support new technologies through R&D and venture capital? Like, how are you doing this through a science experiment, right? Like, how are you thinking about engaging in the R&D process and exercise? And some of these things are happening from, from a, a wide array of activities, but these are just some examples. And then finally, are you developing non-oil and gas projects, you know, either organically or from some merger, mergers and acquisitions? And which, to us, was a signal that maybe you're trying to think about whether this is a viable business, right? How to incorporate it into your business process, how to get involved in a different segment of the business that you're not currently involved in. And this is you know, where we think that there's per potentially the most to be gained. Yes, there's certainly something to be gained on the R&D side. We need much more money on the R&D side for a lot of these clean energy technologies. But one of the questions is, are we going to find new business models that make these things advantageous? And if we do, um, you know, where are we going to learn those? And so to the extent that these companies start to embed new business models into their own thinking, we think that is, you know, potentially not a, po I can't say that that's going to mean that's the future for these companies, but it certainly can tell us a little bit about um, what they're learning on that side of the equation. Um, some oil and gas company actions stood out to us as being particularly unique. Uh, one is certainly sort of offshore wind, uh, and maybe Ethan can talk a little bit about uh, that as well. Um, scaling manufacturing of solar PV and batteries, so the acquisition of technology to be able, uh, a manufacturing center to do that, that was somewhat different. Uh, and then betting on the growth of EVs and scaling charging networks, right? So, so the idea that an oil and gas company would get all the way down to the sort of consumer-facing uh, front of an electric vehicle market uh, is interesting to us. And so not to say that these are successful, not to say that these are going to, you know, be harbingers of what's to come in the future, but they did sort of stand out to us as being sort of interesting innovations on that third uh, level of, uh, of activity that I just talked about. Um, Another thing oil and gas companies are doing is they're sort of pooling resources to have greater impact. And so that's uh, exemplified through the creation of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, which is essentially you know, a, a grouping of companies, both NOCs and IOCs, that have gotten together and said, hey, listen, we're going to put large dollars into collaborative work to do energy efficiency work, CCUS work, methane work, investing in new technologies. And so this is a way of trying to make the sum greater than the parts. Uh, and we've got some folks here from OGCI, so maybe if we have questions on that, we can answer that later. Um, so what are the opportunities for further action? Um, the way that we approached this are, is, listen, there's a whole bunch of things that oil and gas companies could probably do to continue to advance and help the issue of, uh, of dealing with climate change. But one of them is, can they actually contribute to this technology, uh, the technology deployment needs that we have? And so we just did a cursory uh, uh, sort of application of the IEA Clean Energy Tracking Progress Report. So everything you see in green on this, which is hard to see, we're on track. <laughs> so there's not a lot. Uh, everything else needs more investment, more deployment, more policy support, more, 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 more. So what we tried to do was match up some of the activities on this with areas that we thought that oil and gas companies could potentially do more. Um, and some of the opportunities that we talked about in the workshop were uh, things like electric vehicle charging, uh, electrification, hydrogen, direct air capture, uh, carbon capture use and sequestration, and offshore wind. There's a broad-based agreement that there like, may be some sort of technological opportunity, um, either in demonstration projects or proving a business model for some of these things. There was also some disagreement, right? So like electrification, 
you know, where are the, where are the places where uh, companies can have an impact versus not outside of just electrifying their own operations, right? So like what else could be done uh, um, out there? And so we talked a little bit about this. We've got some summaries of that in the report as well. Um, what's working and not working? You won't see this in the report, and I'm not going to, uh, where's my co-author, Stephen Nimoli? Uh, I'm not going to attribute these to him necessarily, but we did talk about them a lot afterwards. I mean, some of my perspectives on, on what's working and not working, um, the sources of investment and partnership have actually been really important for the clean tech community. So we had a bunch of clean tech folks that we talked to. This engagement is a positive thing, right? It does add capital to the process, and, and there's a lot of you know, positivity that's coming out of that. Um, learning about technology and business models is also something that we see as a clear positive that could potentially come out of this, right? So if, if there is sort of additional excitement about the advancement of a given technology or deployment of additional demonstration projects, that's a good thing, right? I would argue we probably need to do a truckload more of it to get a lot more notice, but I think that those are definitely positive things. Um, some negatives, there's a limit to how much these companies can spend on doing these things, right? So when we sort of engaged, and maybe Trace will have some perspective on this, when we engage sort of with the, the, about the conversations between the investment community and these companies, there's definitely a tension there. They're not allowed to not get good returns. They're not allowed to offer, not offer good returns to investors in favor of doing things on the clean tech side of the equation. And, and so I think, that, I think that that sort of, you know, how much more money can we spend on these types of things conversation is, a, is sort of a big preoccupation within some of, uh, within some of these, these, uh, these conversations. Uh, and then finally, the policy environment isn't robust enough to send super clear signals. Now, we can talk about who needs to make a better policy environment. I have perspectives on that. Uh, but, but certainly, the idea that companies should lead policy versus policy should lead companies is something that we talk a lot about in these conversations and certainly happy to engage on within the context of this one. So that's what we said in the report, and uh, I hope you guys will pick up a copy and take a read, and maybe we can talk about it. But for now, I'd like to turn to some of my colleagues and ask for their perspective on some of what we uh, tried to unveil or sort of discuss in the report. So thank you. I know, right? I was so determined to do it quickly. So basically, you've all taken a look at the report. Thank you very much for doing it. And this is an issue that you guys engage on all the time in your day-to-day -day, uh, business. So maybe if we could just start, how do you, as, a, as an individual or your institution, sort of engage with this issue of how corporations or oil and gas companies in particular deal with the issue of climate change? And we can start either way. Tracy, you want to go first? Sure. Great. Um, it may be helpful to level set and explain a little bit about Ceres. Ceres is a sustainability nonprofit that was formed after the Exxon Valdez um, oil spill by some folks that wanted to link investments with corporate um, behavior. And so 30 years later, we're still, still building on that and really leveraging the financial markets for, for affecting change in, in corporate um, behavior to have sustainable economies. So we work with um, investors who want to further that. Um, so they're primarily um, interested in climate change. They're faith-based. They're pension funds. They are um, responsible investment asset managers. And they engage with companies asking them to think about climate change and to be more transparent. A few years ago, one of our members um, was looking at their portfolio, a large pension fund, and realized, you know, if I really want to tackle this, there's really a small subset of companies that has an impact on what the emissions future is going to look, 
look like? And so it was about 100 companies. And so this, this initiative, Climate Action 100, was formulated from that. And it's a global initiative, uh, 370 institutional investors with 35 trillion in assets under management managed by different organizations across the globe. And they are engaging with these high impact emitters and asking them for governance. Does your board recognize climate change and is your board working on climate change seriously? Um, they're looking at action across the value chain, so including scope three, not just what you're doing in your operations, but the impacts of your, your goods sold and then transparency, report according to um, task, the guidelines recommended by the task force on climate-related financial disclosure. Um, and, and so it's a, a very serious five-year initiative. We've had some success. Um, Shell, BP, uh, Glencore have all made some commitments in the last year based on dialogue with Climate Action 100. So there's progress being made, but overall, um, seriously in, insufficient to meet the demands that we do need to, to make to, to address the issue. That's great. Thanks, Ethan, you want that? So hi, everyone. I'm uh, Ethan Zindler. I'm with Bloomberg NEF. As Sarah mentioned, we're a division of Bloomberg that does uh, energy market research. Uh, we do research on really all technologies now, but we began life really focusing exclusively on renewable energy technologies. So. Um, I just have to offer a few thoughts. Um, I thought the report was really very useful in sort of laying out the, the landscape of where we are seeing activity and investment in, in lower carbon technologies from oil and gas majors. And I think it was also a great sort of uh, entree for folks who maybe have not paid as much attention to this um, to date. So, to, so do check it out. Um, just a few thoughts on my end, which, uh, you know, we've, since we began life 15 years ago, we have been tracking these investments from, from these companies in these uh, sectors. Uh, and I think it's been striking that uh, we certainly have seen some zigs and zags uh, along the way. Uh, for those of you who are local, you may recall that uh, just up the road in Frederick, Maryland, until 2010, BP used to manufacture photovoltaic modules right here in our, our neighborhood, and then they laid off 400 people uh, in 2010, closed the plant. Um, Shell used to do uh, a fair amount of wind development, then got out, got back in. Um, so we've seen some zigs and zags along the way, mainly I would note from the European-based oil companies with the, the U.S. ones much more steadily kind of tiptoeing their way into things uh, over time. Um, but I would say now, over the last, this decade, the action has been sort of more sustained and more consistent uh, across the board. Um, but there is definitely a clear divergence between the way the European uh, large integrated oil companies are approaching this and the ones over here are. I thought the report does a really nice job of, of creating different categories. We've written, we've got four kind of strategies that we've kind of tried to map out in reports that we've done as well. But the real, I think there, there's really a couple camps, but the, the main one being um, firms that, um, that, that seem to be committed to changing their strategy fundamentally with the belief that the world is going to change and they need to be all energy producers going forward. And really Shell, BP, Total are probably the three that have been kind of most leading on that. Shell has declared that they want to be the world's largest power company sometime in the 2030s, which by the way, would be a massive undertaking. There is a Chinese company that owns 225 gigawatts of, of solar, I'm sorry, of, of uh, power generation today. 
Um, that's, you know, to put that in context, that's about a fifth of, of the entire United States installed base. So making that kind of pivot is no small thing if that's seriously going to happen. Um, but we've seen much more of a commitment there. I would say the U.S. companies um, have been much more focused uh, more on uh, technologies that are more directly associated with their so-called scope one emissions. Um, things like CCUS, hydrogen, um, and other technologies, digital technologies to improve um, the extraction of oil and gas. That's been more sort of thematically what we've seen from over here. And I realize those are, I'm painting with really broad, the really broad paintbrush here, but I think that that's uh, kind of the key differentiator. And the question is whether or not we'll see further, we'll see some further changes here in the US. Uh, the other question, which I, I think we should come back on, is how, we're we're, how, we're how will shareholders feel about um, oil and gas companies becoming power companies, which typically don't offer the same rate of return as, uh, as oil and gas companies, um, and how sustainable that is. Uh, I'm going to just finish with um, one or two quick other notes, which is um, I think the report is great about gathering a lot of data. We've tried to collect a lot of data. There is also, though, a report from OGCI themselves in which they track how much money has actually gone into research and development, which for those of you who are energy wonks, you know, that's really hard data to get a hand on because, uh, uh, because it's typically proprietary. Um, and the report, uh, this year's report notes that I think nine companies of the 13 who are part of the OGCI disclosed their R&D investment in lower carbon energy technologies, and collectively they put a billion dollars in uh, in 2018 between them. Um, that represents, the report says, 15% of the total R&D budget of these companies. Um, now, I'll, let me asterisk that because people within the industry will tell you that that doesn't necessarily fully do it justice. There are other kinds of technologies that oil and gas invest in that improves efficiency and has carbon. Um, and the report itself has this very specific note saying they're going to revisit this metric. Um, but let me just say that a billion dollars is peanuts. Uh, it, it is a small amount of money in the grand scheme of what needs to be invested. Um, and, uh, you know, for instance, we tracked over $350 billion in new capital flowing into new renewable energy, for the most part, uh, just in 2018 alone. The high water mark for VC or venture capital and private equity investment in renewable energy technologies was over $10 billion in one year. So 1 billion and 15%, if those are the numbers, and those are the numbers that came from the oil and gas climate initi uh, initiative, that's not, that's not nearly sufficient, I think, and I think it's fair to say. Um, one last point on this, and then I'll, I'll stop, which is um, I, I was very privileged two weeks ago to be able to go to the OGCI annual meeting in New York. Um, and it culminates with a day, uh, with a two-hour session in which the 13 CEOs of the largest oil producers sit uh, in a circle, and then, and then the, us, us lesser folks get to sort of sit in concentric circles behind them um, and ask real questions. And I thought it was a great event and, um, and probably the most compelling part of Climate Week, which I often find is a lot of, frankly, preaching to the converted. Um, but this was a session in which real questions were asked. Uh, and, uh, and in a number of cases, answers were given as well. Um, but the one thing that struck me just as a, and we'll come back to this, is there does seem to be a divide around this question of responsibility uh, and scope one versus scope three emissions, which is a technical term, but I think it's worth sort of talking about for one second, which is I think if you walked out on the street <coughs> and you asked the average person, um, when they think about oil companies and CO2 emissions and climate change, what do they think of? The answer is, you know, the nearest car or truck that's going down the street and what's coming out of the tailpipe. I think most people don't even know that it takes CO2 to get oil and gas out of the ground, which is the scope one fit, uh, sector of, of emissions. 
So I also think that a lot of the oil and gas industry thinks that they can focus just on scope one, address that issue, and to some degree say, well, we've done our job. But I don't think the public necessarily is going to view it that way. And I fully get the point that Sarah made in the report that is, if you pick up an Apple iPhone like I've got here, the vast majority of the CO2 emissions related to that are scope three, meaning that it was you know, Foxconn and the other suppliers that helped make the stuff that went into there. But that's, that's fine, that's so UN technical speak, but in the real world, how people view oil and gas companies, they view CO2 emissions from cars and trucks as part of the issue that's related to the oil companies themselves. And so that divide strikes me as a tricky one, and one that I think that's probably worth us talking more about, but um, thank you for letting me share a few thoughts. That's perfect, thanks Ethan. We'll come back to both of those issues. David. Great, well, so you asked, perspectives from my institution. I'm an academic and therefore I'm your head. barely responsible for myself. <laughs> um, so I want to just make four observations from the point of view of somebody who studied this for, for a long time. The first one is what's motivating action? Um, I think the firms that are now getting very serious about this are motivated out of an existential concern. Mm. They're concerned about license to operate uh, you see this now with gas companies that are w looking at things like the San Jose and Berkeley bans and a variety of other activities in the United States, especially in the European companies. And that's why on your chart that showed the, the fraction of capital deployment, top five firms were all European firms. Nobody was above 5%, so I think Ethan's point that the total numbers right now are small, but, but the mindset is really shifting, and it's shifting quickly in the places where the where the leadership is concerned about this as an existential issue. I think one, one reason that's important is that if this were just a compliance problem, you could look at the marginal price of carbon and then figure out what the optimal compliance strategy is and so on. And almost everywhere in the world, the marginal price of carbon is really low, or you know maybe it's $20 a ton or $30 a ton. We're now seeing almost $30 a ton in Europe. And the compliance strategies are straightforward. But if this is an existential question where you don't really know what's going to happen to your firm, but it could be really horrible, then you change your, then you begin to change your strategy. The second of the four things I wanted to talk about is about industrial organization. You, you mentioned in your opening remarks that there are you know, a, a lot of different kinds of firms. There are big firms, there are small firms. I think that point is, is really important. This right now in the industry is mainly a big firm issue, longer time horizons. In the US, uh, small firms, small producers are barely surviving. You know, the intense competition uh, with shale oil, intense competition with gas supply, and so on. These companies are just kind of to stay alive for a year. Mm -hmm. And so, so some of the industrial organization, actually some of the difficulty the industry has in speaking with a single voice is because there's not a single voice. And the in industry associations have all these different kinds of firms in them, and they, and they don't really actually agree on fundamental questions and fundamental strategy. But I think the other aspect of industrial organization that may turn out to be much more important is how the firm allocates resources inside the firm. Because these are ultimately oil and gas companies, uh, uh, and they are traditionally organized around allocating capital for very high returns with very high risk. And it's capital, it's resources, it's R&D, and so on. And so it's not surprising that they are all in various ways still kind of tinkering around at the margins with a lot of these activities because the returns on those investments are, are nothing like the classic oil and gas returns on, on investments. Mm -hmm. And well, I'm sure we'll talk about technologies that are promising and not promising, but when I look at the, that, the way these firms are organized and their industrial organization, I think 
most of what's being tried right now as decarbonization strategy is going to fail because they, these firms are not good at doing that kind of activity. They're, those activities will simply die and be taken over by, by other firms. The third thing I want to talk about is the fence line. I think this, this is crucially important. If, this, if the climate change issue for the industry were an inside the fence line of scope one, meaning emissions caused by your own activities, and scope two, meaning emissions that are caused by buying energy services from other companies, this would be, it wouldn't be straightforward to manage, but the firms could manage almost all the problem. And you see that the firms that have now gotten serious about methane emissions, they're not there to zero yet, but it's amazing how much progress is being made on, on fugitive methane emissions, understanding where they're coming from, reducing them, be a lot more rapid progress in the coming few years. End of story. But the really fundamental question is the scope three, and I think that's because the politics define it this way, and, and also kind of common sense defines it, defines it this way. And so if a firm is worried existentially about license to operate, it's got to be worried about the consequences of the way its product is, is, uh, is used in the, in the outside market. And the last thing I'll say is that I think one of the things that's challenging, even as firm, e even as companies struggle with how are they going to be a leader in this business, I think one of the things that's fundamentally difficult about the climate change problem, and this is true not only at the corporate level, but it's also true um, at the government level, is that this is, a, this is not actually a leadership problem. It's a followership problem. The, the, a tiny fraction of world emissions come from the places that are actually leading on policy and leading on emissions control. And ironically, the more you do to solve the problem, the less relevant you become to the underlying problem. And so from a, from a strategic point of view, a firm that looks at deploying huge amounts of capital to, or a government that looks at the same question, to, to work on the problem, it's, it's thrilled by, by the fact that it's a leader and maybe it'll generate some new market share and some new products and so on. But you've got to find a way to take leadership and turn it into followership, whether it's border adjustments or bludgeoning other countries to follow your standards or whatever the strategy is. And I think that part of that larger question of, of how leadership generates followership has got to be the overall picture. Otherwise, we're going to be just talking to ourselves amongst the kind of green elite, as it were, mm -hmm. and not actually having an impact on the underlying problem, which is global emissions. So uh, these are all really great uh, insights that I want to come back to. I want to work our way back to this issue, both of the scope three emissions, which I think is really quite connected to this leadership versus followership issue, right? I mean, I think there's, there's a couple of issues here. One is, do, you know, what does this mean for the oil and gas industry, which is an interesting question for a subset of people, right? There's a bigger question, which is, what does this mean for our ability to motivate additional action on climate change, which is more public policy-wise, more an interesting question. And I think both of you are getting at some of the dynamics between those two worlds, which I want to sort of come back to. But you said something which I found interesting, which I think, it, it, in my experience, has like the priors that people bring to this conversation are often oriented about whether or not they think the oil and gas industry can make any contributions or have any future in things that are not oil and gas related. So on, like, on a basic level, like, are there things that the oil and gas industry is more, our, our sort of report says there are things that the oil and gas industry could make substantive contributions to, and there are things that they're more naturally inclined to do and may match their business model better. Do, do you guys generally agree with that? Yeah, certainly. I mean, first, of course, the sheer six scale of, scale of capital. I mean, yeah. these, are the, these are the world's largest energy companies. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Um, but the second thing is just uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
basic that you know they are um, on, they also have downstream operations all the way to retail, retail operations. They are on the front lines of engaging consumers on transportation. In the U.S., transportation is now the largest share of CO2 emissions. So could oil and gas companies be at the very fr front lines of installing electric vehicle charging at their stations? Sure, and we're starting to see some of that take place. So I think there's some things there. More basically, I think there's also a tremendous amount of in-house expertise about energy and decades of experience uh, and know-how uh, and uh, intellectual firepower, which you know, brought to bear on these issues can make a huge difference, and we're starting to see some of that as well. I guess I, I agree with what Ethan said. I'm more skeptical that that means that they automatically have a central role in the decarbonization revolution. I think they are going to have a central role if the decarbonization revolution involves lots of complex stuff in the subsurface, uh, large engineered facilities, complex chemical engineering facilities like refineries or platforms, um, and networks of gas pipelines and so on. In that world, these firms are very well positioned to be the dominant players. So that means a world of hydrogen, a world of CCUS, um, maybe a few other uh, t technologies. I'm very skeptical, I mean, we, no, we have no idea right now, I, I'm very skeptical of the companies that are make, putting a lot of chips on the electricity square, for example. I, I think they don't, they don't really know that business. They've actually done it before, lost vast amounts of money doing it, so they'll do it again. Um, they gotta try, it's great that people are trying. So I, 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 think, I think the scope is gonna be narrower, but you know, we don't know. Yeah. I guess I would say that definitely they have the financial, the technical, the managerial resources to do big things. They've done that for a long time. And, and if you look at certain core competencies, like I think in your report you mentioned um, offshore drilling, that there's a translation to offshore wind, right? There's some, some technological expertise that you can transfer. Um, I think a big risk in the industry is disruption. You know, there's just a, a lot of disruptive um, business models that are likely to emerge. The, the oil and gas industry is not terribly efficient at this stage of its development. If you think about getting um, energy, for instance, to the wheel of the car, I don't know if you saw um, the BNP Paribas report, you know, about uh, if you're starting from scratch, the energy, uh, the capital required to get energy at the wheel is, you know, six or seven times more efficient if you're starting with electricity, electricity than you are if you start with oil and gas. So um, I think there's opportunity for disruption that, that could happen. So my other question is about, like, players in the field, right? So, for example, we, when we're talking about this, right, and what does this transition look like, and, and could they be competitive in the transition, and there's some optimism and some skepticism here. Uh, we, again, we, we talked about the oil and gas industry writ large, but not everybody is going to participate in that, right? So what do we think about how, how especially, you know, Tracy, maybe on your side of the equation, like there are some companies for whom this dialogue about what are you going to do about climate change can go pretty far afield into you become a whole new kind of company. And there are for some for whom they're kind of sitting there looking at investors saying, I'm told I'm supposed to be a different kind of company, but I'm pretty sure my responsibility is to like build that infrastructure and deliver that fuel. And there's still people asking me to do that. So what are they, like what's the role for different kinds of companies in this conversation? Like if you're a service company or you're a smaller company or you're a pure play gas player, like. How is the differentiation in, in those companies engaging in this conversation? 
You know, all companies need to be looking at it because the one thing we can probably all agree on is that the energy future is gonna be very different than it is today. So I, we don't know what it will look like, but it's certain to be very different. And um, we ask companies to do scenario analysis, to look at your operations, your strategy, your competencies, and figure out what those signposts look like, where you're gonna be 10, 20, 30 years along the road, and adapt. And um, there are tools out there, use those. For some companies, they may not have a future. And I don't think there's any historical model for that, but, but companies should be thinking about a managed decline, thinking about what metrics can I focus on, perhaps return of cash to shareholders, but not investing in growth, not investing in like new production, and um, see how to gracefully exit. We don't do that, but that's really what some of these companies will need to do. I, well, a couple things. First, um, I think you raise a good point. Just so, so at the OGCI event a couple weeks ago, uh, again, it was the, thir the CEOs of 13, of just about the top 13, I think maybe Conoco wasn't there, but basically the biggest integrated oil companies were there at the table. And as was noted by a number of times, as collectively they represented, I believe, 30% of production in the world. So there's a lot of production from companies that, uh, that uh, most Americans and most members of the public have never heard of. And these guys are independent oil and gas producers. They've been doing it for decades, and that's what they do. They don't, they don't run get you know gasoline stations which are really you know convenience stores selling candy bars they get oil and gas out of the ground they sell it um, and I think you're right they're in a tough spot they, they aren't um, they, they, they are not in positions to make big pivots and to reconsider new things and I think it's going to be it's going to be challenging for them but the point that uh, was made by the CEOs at this event was hey look if you want me to change my strategy and sort of get out of the oil and gas game there's someone right behind me who's going to be happy to sell it to you for the same price or cheaper as I was so to say that I should just like stop doing what I'm doing isn't really realistic and I think that's a very um, you know, uh, fair, fair point as well as if we look at these companies. The last thing I would say is that, um, you know, we at, at Bloomberg NEF have probably the most optimistic uh, forecast out there for electric vehicle adoption. Um, we think that something like a third of the cars sold by 2040 are going to be EVs, about half, well, over half the cars on the road will be EVs. Um, but we don't predict um, a massive decline in demand for oil products. I mean, we think that that, that results in maybe 10% you know, decline. Um, so I, I'm not of a, a belief that there's an inevitability that the, that the days are numbered for the oil and gas industry given the current policy environment that we're in. Um, I would argue that you probably, you, you know, the, the world I've just articulated is not one where we actually deal with climate change. And so if we do have policies that come along and change, that could make life much more challenging. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. For example, BP probably has the, of the major oil companies that do projections and release them to the public, probably has the most optimistic EV penetration scenario. And they have a similar impact, you know, a few million barrels a day. They have a bigger uncertainty about the future of plastics and its impact on oil. And I think we take a step back from this. Unless we're going rapidly to a world of very deep cuts in emissions, oil continues on because it's an enormously high-value product, very high power density and a liquid fuel. To me, the really pivotal questions for these companies are going to be about gas. Mm -hmm. You could see a future world where we engage in deep decarbonization, 
where we blend a lot of hydrogen in, in the gas network. This is the vision of Equinor and many other companies, and some are actually putting capital behind it now. And we have gaseous fuels, and they help provide storage on the grid and integration of renewables and reliability and big reductions in emissions. Um, that's one world where the people who are in the gas business or moving gaseous fuels around thrive, actually. And then you have other worlds where gas just gets completely shut out. So I think I, actually gas is going to be the pivotal question. I will say that as an analyst, this is, all of these questions have created big forecasting problems because <laughs> you see change everywhere. So you see the signal of change everywhere, but the noise level at the same time has gone up because there's a lot of disruption and you don't know. It's all these little butterflies flapping their wings and you don't know which flap is going to produce change and which flap is just going to be a flap. And, and so the, the signal to noise ratio is, has gone down because the, the denominator has gotten so big so quickly. Yeah. So this leads me to the question that is I want to combine sort of this scope three issue because I do agree that, you know, Ethan, most people think about emissions from the oil and gas sector as being the consumption of those things, I think. I actually would love to like go figure out whether that's true, but like I think, uh, I, I, I'm always amazed at how little people think about that whole value chain in, in, uh, in general, but maybe I'm just the anomaly here. Uh, uh, one of the big questions that we did not sort of take on in an analytical way here, but really does sort of get a company philosophy and, and quite frankly, broad philosophy about how you actually affect more bigger change is on the policy side of this, right? So if you had a policy apparatus that made this into a compliance issue versus a theory of change, how do you lead so there are followers piece, that would seem to solve a lot of this, wouldn't it? Right, I mean, that would make this a little bit neater. But so my question is, there's still a lot of reluctance and heterogeneity within the oil and gas industry to engage on those policy conversations. How should we think about that? Like, how should we think about the role of policy here versus pushing on companies to act faster than policy is pushing on them to act and, and some of those, like, trade-offs? I, I guess I'd say two things. One is I think it's really important to distinguish between ideal policy and real policy. Every company, every major company in this space now has articulated a vision of policy that is usually a kind of economics dream world where you remove regulation, you use market instruments only, you recycle the money optimally inside the economy, everyone hugs each other, and we're all thrilled. And then the real world of policy is totally different. It's a, just a dog's breakfast of activities. Uh, every, every market that has a market-based instrument for dealing with climate also actually most of the work gets done by non-market instruments. So you have all these complicated interaction effects. And I think the really big strategic, the policy challenge for these companies is how to, how to operate in the policy space where the policies are going to be real-world policies as opposed to ideal world policies. Because it's, it's just unacceptable to say, well, we don't like that policy because here's the ideal policy. We don't have a, a planet on which the ideal policy could actually be adopted, but this is our ideal policy vision. I think that's going to be the really big challenge for, for these companies. I think it's absolutely critical. Um, I, I think more uh, around the current situation with methane and you know if you look at what's going on with with methane and you know the the legitimacy of natural gas to be a bridge fuel it's it's intrinsically tied to their ability to manage methane and as you said some companies are doing fabulous jobs they've got all this super technology managing it but in reality it's only getting a very small 
piece of what's being flared. There are something like 32 operators in the Permian last year that flared 100%. What we're, we're, we're seeing reported is maybe half of what's actually being flared or, or wasted. So um, policy would go a long way to lever, leveling the playing field, and it actually helps the actors that are doing a really good job. It, it makes it advantageous to them. So um, that's just a small example, but policy is critical. I, I mean, I don't know. There's so, such a big topic, but I mean, I guess I would, I would say that... Um, well, first, something that affects the, can affect all players as equally as possible, so you don't just um, impose pain on one segment. Um, and I think um, I do think there's a schism. It strikes me between the, the those those the largest oil and gas companies and the independent producers, and they don't feel like they always feel like they're on the same page around these topics. I don't really know how you sort that out, but I think it's worth at least you know sort of noting that. Um, and I think the other thing is, um, you know, uh, in places where the price of, uh, you know, oil and gas, where product consumption is being subsidized, that should just stop. I mean, and that does still exist um, in a number of countries where you have price controls uh, and things like that. And I realize that you, you, you talk about something like that and you could have a so-called yellow vest situation on your hands like they've had in Paris with protests um, or in other countries when you remove them, but uh, th that just strikes me as, you know, fair is fair. Some of these subsidies have been around for decades, century even, in some cases. Can I just make one more point about policy, just because mm -hmm. these conversations often get dark. Um, sorry, I, I, took, I took a We <laughs> <laughs> were on a dark parade there for a moment, sorry. Um, but the vests are very chic. So. Oh, that's true. <laughs> um, I think this problem also looks harder right now than it will be. It looks very, very hard. Because we don't see a lot of demonstration cases. We don't see uh, you know, integrated hydrogen injection into pipeline systems, the like is being planned for T-side or what would happen in some of the Norwegian projects. We don't see uh, integrated management of scope three emissions in a major way. Um, we haven't yet seen fully the deployment of full chain, including smaller producers, for control over venting and flaring. Um, and so, in, under, under conditions of uncertainty, everybody imagines the worst. And that's one of the reasons why the politics are harder to put together, is you don't see as many actual demonstration cases with real information about what it costs, what a real company looks like that's doing it. And under, under those conditions of kind of abstractness, it's harder to glue the politics together. Yeah, this is, so this is one of the reasons why I think the, um, and we had you know, focused a bit on sort of like the investor company interface here in particular because you know, when you think about it in a, in a way, everything involved in the energy sector, whether it's the companies or the infrastructure, all these things, they're, they're sort of holders of value, right? And the idea here with climate change is to be able to transition the system in a way that creates opportunity and doesn't destroy value, right? And so there's, but, but we encountered along the way, and I think we hear a lot about sort of, there's, a, there's actually not just that sort of investor company conversation here. There's also this perception and, and reality of trying to think about, well, what's the risk in the financial system to not dealing with these issues? And so even when you think about, so how are investors or people thinking about investing in the oil and gas companies or in the oil and gas company activities, you've got this real range, right? You've got all the way from people sort of productively working with companies to think about how do you engage in this and how do you think about your investment strategies to folks that are you know, promoting a divestment in the sector writ large and trying to just stop the investment you know, period. 
How do we how do we think about that range of activities and the roles that it plays in motivating change? Right. I mean, what do we? How, how should we think about one? How companies who are trying to engage on this issue should think about that range of investor interest. I don't know if you want to start, Tracy. Sure. Um, yeah, the, the divestment movement is pretty interesting. It's grown a lot. I think uh, I was reading 2014, it had about 52 billion, and now it's got about 11 trillion of assets. Those are, those are real assets, $11 trillion. And um, the investors we work with are all focused on engagement. They want to talk to companies, if maybe filing resolutions, you know, a letter, something a little bit more public. Um, they had a, a very successful meeting with the Vatican this spring um, that resulted in, in, in some, you know, commitments, at least on paper. Um, so divestment is not an option that the investors we work with are currently looking at. But as they get frustrated with action of certain boards um, to act um, or companies to look at really examining their scope three emissions, that, you know, that frustration could rise to the level of divestment. Um, so you know, it, it's certainly a, something that's, that's a big, big presence. And, and you, know, you look at the, the stock market performance, the energy sector was last year, it came in last. Um, Exxon fell out of the top 10. You know, there's definitely been, been a, a huge decrease. I think 1980, the energy sector was something like 28% of the S&P 500, and now it's about 4%. So that, that prominence of that sector has, has shrunk considerably. Um, so, you know, I think it is a real concern for, for companies to be thinking about their license to operate. I, I think those are really good points that I, I, I mean, I try and build on a little bit, which is, uh, and I, it's really more of a question, which is I just think, um, I, I just wonder, I, it strikes me that some of these companies are at an interesting juncture. I mean, as you point out, their, their, their relative um, market value to the overall market has shrunk. Um, some of them are boosting their dividends, um, meaning that they want to be perceived more as sort of value stocks, meaning you know that they're they're lower risk, but also lower growth, and they're going to return more of the capital to their investors. I think it was Conoco. I think just boosted theirs the other day, um, and my my colleagues actually, um, Nat Bullard has written a great piece about this. Um, and so I think there's a little bit of an interest. It used to be it was like, okay, oil companies are go-go, they're risky. Um, utility companies, they're boring and they're slow, but they <laughs> offer good um, um, dividends. But that, that's becoming a bit more ambiguous now, and um, so which I, which I find kind of curious. I'm not sure shareholders are fully on board with, with changing definitions around that. Um, um, but I think the real interesting test case will be particularly, again, around, I keep bringing up Shell, but Shell's such an interesting case because they are, um, I mean, they are going seriously into investing uh, you know a lot in electricity generation distribution electric vehicle charging all all these areas um, they, they are not just talking the talk and um, and uh, so I, I just wonder how shareholders are going to feel about that long term given that historically utilities and electricity companies do not offer the same rate of return um, that uh, oil and gas companies do yeah I agree with these points I, I mean these companies also do old-fashioned things like make money which is not, you know, the new, right. new century. Which, which, by the way, EV charging does not do right now. So at some point, maybe I'm just, just stuck in the last century, yeah. but at some point that will probably be important for some of these companies. Um, I guess 
Um, one of the concerns I have about the divestment movement, and it's why I think the engagement part of the divestment movement is going to have a big impact, and the kind of simple index-driven divestment movement, I think, is going to be a fad, is that it's very hard to um, figure out whether a company is part of the problem or part of the solution. And I think you see that in this space here. Um, there's been an equation of fossil fuels with the problem. That may be true. That may not be true. The problem is carbon. I'm actually very concerned that we're now kind of going rapidly into a lot of things that are explicitly not fossil fuels, but are not actually directly addressing the underlying problem. I think some of the renewables movement is about that. So, so I, I, that to me is, a, is actually a big concern. But this happens all the time whenever you have a divestment movement. The same was true with the anti-apartheid divestment movement, where it was very hard to figure out which companies were part of the solution, which were part of the problem. Across the board, there was divestment. But this one, I think, is this, this challenge is, is a much longer term, more difficult challenge. The last thing I'll say is, I remain skeptical, you said in passing, this concerns about larger financial risk. I remain very skeptical of the kind of Bank of England arguments and others that there are systemic financial risks from misvaluation of assets. You know, these the firms that are holding um, resources under, underground are now repricing them and revaluing them on a regular basis. Their portfolios that they hold are eight or 10 years, maybe 12 years long. And so I think that the time scale of change, although there's gonna be big changes in valuation, the time scale of change inside the industry is going to be consistent with the capacity of the financial system to absorb those shifts in valuation. Do you think that there's, do you, but you, do you think there's like a discovery process within the financial system for understanding those risks better? I think nobody knows right now. The, the, the reality is if you, if you look at these forward projections for oil consumption and for natural gas consumption, if the resources of the company are oil and gas in markets and you know how to get the product to market, you know how to value the product. And so I think actually, the, the degree of assumed mispricing of that risk is, is nothing like what, what um, people are claiming. Okay. We're going to go to the audience for questions in just one second, so please be thinking of, of what they are. We want to get you involved in the discussion. But, you know, as a maybe as a sort of closing thought uh, for all of you to share, I, you know, I tend to have done this for a little bit now. There's a lot of butterflies flapping. You're not getting, you kind of have to divide the world and like things that you see as potential harbingers of good stuff and things that you see that are potential harbingers of not so good stuff, right? And so as we think about corporate engagement, and I don't think this is actually just the oil and gas industry, but that's what we're talking about today, so we can stick with that. We think about them as playing some sort of leadership function here, right? Or some sort of active involvement in being part of the solution function. As we go forward, like what are the things that you're looking for that are signs that we're headed in the right direction versus signs that we're headed in sort of like a non-productive wrong direction? How should people who are interested in tracking this issue gauge what they're thinking about? Anybody? Uh, David. So I think it's really important to distinguish the right direction from a societal point of view and from the corporate point of view. From a societal point of view, this is about emissions. So we need to bend the curve. Last year, emissions went up 2.7% per year. So we're not even, we've got, we've got a good magnitude, it's a wrong sign, so that's a problem. In terms of the firms, um, I would want to see these firms uh, deliver on CCS and hydrogen. If you look at the mapping of their skill set, for the most part, onto things that could be transformative for deep decarbonization, it's a lot of it is CCS and hydrogen. And frankly, I think the European firms are way out in front. Ethan, did you want to go next? After I make sure my phone's Managing off, which phone. it is. Um, 
I, and I think those are really good points, and I think um, I'll, I'll add one point to it, which is um, on CCS, uh, which is get on with it, uh, because now there is a pretty generous tax credit on the books. Um, we don't have I know there's IRS questions, but like you know, make it happen, um, and I think people, um, patients will wear thin relatively uh, quickly on it. I also personal view, which is you know, take advantage of that tax credit to bury CO2 that uh, you know, would otherwise go up into the atmosphere, not just that you know, comes from other places, um, so that it is making a net difference. So I think that those are definitely areas. I think, um, yeah, hydrogen and CCS, because they are areas that require the kind of scale that the oil and gas industry can, can bring to bear, I think are absolutely um, um, you know, very useful. I also think that um, you know, we're of the belief that electric vehicles will become um, cost competitive for consumers unsubsidized really within the next five years or so. Um, and so um, you know, I, 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 my view is that uh, oil and gas companies should embrace that. And um, while, while we, don't think oil, we don't think electric vehicles are going to destroy demand for oil, Sorry, we don't think EVs are going to destroy demand for, for oil products anytime soon. It's still an opportunity. And by the way, it's an opportunity that utilities will gladly take advantage of um, in, in a number of cases. And so uh, oil and gas companies would be wise to try and figure out how to make that play. Um, all that said, I did mention earlier that charging EVs and in public infrastructure right now is not making any money. So I think taking the long view around that is probably the better way to go. <laughs> Long view is critical, right, for the investor. <laughs> Get off the quarterly earnings. Um, I, I think what's hopeful is the conversation that three or four years ago, oil and gas companies, for the most part, weren't talking about climate change and how it should impact their strategy. And that's definitely come to the fore, and they are talking about it. Um, carbon capture and storage, things like that, are are um, probably going to have to be part of the equation. I think we're a little bit cautious on how that's implemented. Um, really need some strong guardrails and, and demonstrate that it's safe, that it can be scaled, that um, you know, if you're building models, if you're a company that's doing scenario analysis and models and you're building that into it, let's link that to goals that are really stringent because we have things like renewables and efficiency that we have now versus CCS, which is hopeful. It's not you know, at scale and, and at a cost point that, that is really actionable right now. Um, I think the thing that I'm most encouraged about is the public commitments to renewable energy. Um, the commitments like Amazon to be carbon neutral by 2040 and purchase 100,000 electric trucks. Boston this morning, it, you know, every day almost, we're having these really large commitments. And they're not just at Amazon. They, you know, that will trickle through all, all throughout the value chain. So I think those changes are, are accelerating things, and, and that's hopeful. Well, Amazon's going to own everything by then anyway. <laughs> problem solved. We want to get you guys involved in the conversation. So uh, if you can, just wait for the mic, state your name and affiliation, and question in the form of the question. We'll go here first and then over here. So why don't we go to Ben and then read and then Susan. Ben Ratner from Environmental Defense Fund. Thanks for a terrific report and a really thought-provoking panel. So two questions, both in the theme of next steps and exploring areas of work to, to help make a difference. David, my former professor, made a point that it's very hard to figure out if some companies are part of the problem or the solution. If that's true, that's, that's pretty profound. How do I even set goals or develop a strategy if I don't know if I'm part of the, the problem or the solution? So I'd love to just get more of your, your thoughts on sort of the basis for that very interesting 
idea? What do you think the value would be of cracking that code and making it much clearer uh, problem versus solution and, and how, might, how might we approach that? And then the second one, Ethan, you talked about the schism between larger and smaller uh, producers. I think every panelist hinted to that. Candidly, I bump into that again and again in the work I'm doing at EDF on methane emissions, and I know that's just a, a microcosm. I guess what I'm wondering is, when we say things like um, you know, oil and gas industry, they can be part of the solution because they have the scale and the resources and the expertise. And David, you were talking about subsea. Are we reinforcing a perception that it's just the biggest, most sophisticated companies that can participate constructively and profitably in the energy transition? Do we as a climate community have a narrative to the smaller oil and natural gas producers that is a real and credible narrative of how they can participate in this energy transition? Do they have any advantages as smaller, more nimble, more agile uh, companies? So I'll leave it there. Thanks. Great. Um, I'm going to have us take reads as well, okay. just because there's yeah. a lot of hands. So let's take these two, and then we'll move over to Susan. Hi, Reed Detchen. Um, I'd like to invite you to uh, look at the other side of the coin, which is that this is all a bunch of baloney, uh, and that uh, for pretty obvious economic reasons, uh, every step we take towards serious action on climate change is devastating to the bottom line of uh, these companies, and that uh, everything they are doing is an exercise in obfuscation, delay, deflect, uh, real action. The most obvious example being uh, a carbon price. Well, ExxonMobil says that they're for a carbon price, but one doesn't really expect that they're for a carbon price that would be effective. They would be in favor of a carbon price that would delay real action uh, for a little longer while they can continue to make their quarterly billions. So. Uh, is this even a realistic conversation, or are we uh, grabbing at straws, uh, harbingers, as, as Sarah said, uh, in, in, in a hopeful way uh, that's not supported by reality, uh, when in fact the industry as a whole, I think clearly in its lobbying presence, has done everything it could to uh, advantage itself in the near term? Thanks, Reid. Okay. So we've got the problem or solution, large, small producer, and the baloney question. Uh, I think for some companies, this is probably baloney. This is the source of my comment about the carbon taxes. I think companies that are hiding behind the idea that the only policy they're in favor of is an ideal carbon tax um, will be smoked out because the real world is not going to do an ideal carbon tax. And that may actually be getting in the way of serious policy discussions, uh, as much as I like to, to believe that we can uh, design ideal policy instruments. I think the the challenge, and, and this actually is going to apply, I think, more to smaller companies than to big companies. I think there's been a big shift to the big companies. They're really, exactly as Tracy said, they're really talking about this and trying to figure it out, but it's not an easy thing. I don't think the, I don't think the community right now has much to offer to the small traditional oil and gas producer. Um, they're doing their business. They're barely surviving. They're using technologies that are causing emissions. End of story. It doesn't mean that they don't have something to say to small companies that are going to operate in a disruptive space. But I think the overall story that we're talking about here is a story where capital and technology are going to be used to make deep reductions in life cycle emissions. And that's going to generally specialize firms that either have large capabilities to run the complex systems 
or firms that are able to operate nimbly as small kind of new entrants in a disruptive, in a disruptive way. And the legacy small oil and gas producer will get crushed by that. That's the inevitable outcome of taking this seriously. Last thing I'll say is about how do you know if, if their company is the solution or the problem? I don't think we really know right now because one way to think about this is that this is an experimentalist problem. You've got firms that once they're motivated by existential concern are going out and trying stuff. And what we need them to do is talk more and demonstrate more what they're trying, what's failing, what's working, how you respond, what are the trade-offs that are involved in deploying capital. And then we're having a real conversation about people who are actually trying to engage in problem solving as opposed to you know, smoking. That's the difficult thing about being at a, 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 a company enterprise, right? A competitiveness corporate investigation enterprise versus a public good, right? And that's why I think some of how we engage with companies on what they're doing might matter for that learning process if we think there's good to be gleaned there. Um, I'll try and answer the second one, which is, um, I mean, again, going back to the OGCI event, I was just struck by listening how much distrust there is uh, among certainly the environmental community, but also a lot of others who are worried about climate change and a sort of lack of belief that anything that these oil executives were saying was truly heartfelt. I don't have the capability to know whether or not when, when someone says something they mean it or whether they're just saying it you know, for, 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 for other reasons. But um, I would say that um, I do think that they are, and I think the, the Sarah's report points this out, I think they are legitimately convinced that policy action is coming at them in the form of worry about climate change. So, uh, and that, so I, to my mind, that's kind of step one. So putting aside the feelings and, uh, or, or the kind of actual you know, larger convictions, they, in the real world, they think they're, they're going to get hit by something. Um, and they want to take action on it uh, to address it. So I think that's actually good, because I actually don't think that conventional wisdom was there five years ago. That's just my, my perspective. Um, and so then the, the second question, though, though, does get at this question of what does addressing it actually mean? And I do have concerns that addressing scope one emissions, um, when you address your scope one emissions, meaning you reduce the emissions associated with getting your oil and gas out of the ground, often that's also an act of energy efficiency, meaning you're saving yourself money. Um, so that's great. You can brag about how you've reduced your scope one emissions, but if you in the process have reduced the cost of extraction overall by a dollar or two, well then you've just added to scope three emissions, and that's not actually dealing with the problem. And so I think that, um, you know, that's the, the challenge here in all of these conversations. Um. <laughs> Just a, a quick comment. I, I think also a link that's not always made is when you're talking about scope three, particularly for the oil and gas. Um, we need to think about the demand impacts also. So um, when you have all this electrification, EVs and all that, that even if as an oil and gas company you don't think that you have direct control over scope three and there's some validity to that, to be looking at that from a demand, where's your demand coming from, I think is, is a valuable exercise. Yeah. So can I just, I want to address the baloney question fairly directly. I, because I think about it a lot, um, and I think a couple, a couple different things. One, I do think that there's a, I do think that the level of, companies think about risk. They think about managing a whole bunch of risks that include this, but are not just this, right? And I think over time, it's become more apparent that the risk associated with dealing with this comes from a 
bunch of different directions. And it's not just over a long-term time frame, it's over a quarterly time frame now, right? Like it's, it's all the time. It's sort of like an ever-present, conversational, strategic, long-term viability risk. And so in corporate speak, I think that that has changed the way that people think about this issue. And I think, to me, the most evident portion of this is the, the degree to which companies throughout the value chain are going, I have to figure out what all of this means now. Please help me. Like, I don't know, I didn't take this risk seriously before, and now I need to think about it. I need to know because I have to come up with answers. And so, to me, that is a level that I think is, you know, probably a, a degree more serious. I, I'm going to get in a little bit of trouble here, okay? There's a lot of baloney in this whole conversation, right? There's a lot of places where we act like we know precisely how to do what we're proposing to do, and it's exceedingly complicated. And I think that the idea that this is not just, we're gonna set up the system, we're gonna comply to the rules, and everything will be fine, is a really hard thing to put on companies and policymakers who are not sure about what the cost of compliance truly will be, what will go right, what will go wrong. I mean, look at other experiments we've had in energy policy spaces that have just gone badly. So I think that there's a lot about this conversation that's like, well, it's your fault you're not acting. It's your fault. I mean, look at the policy space. We have some pretty aggressive policies out there for which people are habitually underperforming. And so I do think that there's a little bit of this where, where you know, I, I, I can't help but be an incrementalist. I'll take progress where people are going to offer it. And if there can be legitimate progress that is offered by a policymaker or an investor or a community, I think we have to try and engage with it seriously because I really don't know where to just find that sort of like genuine holy grail piece of the equation. But anyway, that's... Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll just add on that, which is let's suppose that it is all, that everything they said is baloney. Then what? We have no, what do you do? I mean, we're in this world. It's the only world we've got. These are the world's largest you know, energy companies. They, we, we need them to be engaged in this conversation. So frankly, what, what, what they think of what I think doesn't matter. Uh, the question is, how, does, how, does, uh, how do you keep these folks engaged in, in you know, building a solution? Yeah, but the pressure is important. Okay, let's take another round. I can probably fit in three more. We got Susan and Liam and you, sir. Thank you, Susan Kish from OGCI. So glad to be here and a really interesting conversation. I wanted to pick up on two sort of intersecting themes. One was a theme, David, you brought up about leadership and followership, which fits into that other question, which is OGCI, for example, is uh, just over 32% of the world's production. This is a really, um, this is not a concentrated sector. And one of the sectors that your report didn't really focus on were all these NOCs. So the question is, how do we, how do we flip that equation? Have you thought about how do we flip? So leadership really is leadership in this and has impact. And then how do we, we scale it effectively to that other 60 whatever, 68% of the world so that it actually it's a sector that's moving, not a defined set of players. Thank you, Grace. Liam. Hi, Liam Stone with the government of Alberta up in Canada. Um, I'm wondering what impact do you think uh, profitability of their core uh, business has on where, what the picture looks like going forward? So, if, you know, 
blunt terms, if we have a $120 barrel, uh, dollar barrel oil for the next decade versus $20 barrel oil, how does that shift strategy, if at all, um, given what we're thinking about here today? Good questions. Thanks. Okay, and then the gentleman right back there. Thanks. Hi there, Kayvon from the Canadian Embassy. Um, it seems on route to a cleaner, greener global economy, uh, natural gas is an important part of the puzzle, especially because of its portability and from jurisdictions where they can extract and refine on E-Drive, especially from clean, uh, clean energy sources. But we often refer to natural gas in tandem with oil, and it seems to, this it causes the public to conflate these two energy sources and see natural gas as part of the problem, not the solution. I think it's incumbent on us to separate that terminology, or at the very least, would it be wise to do so? Okay, great question. Okay, we've got uh, flipping the equation, so getting that other percentage of the oil and gas uh, community to sort of follow this. Uh, profitability of the core business, how does that affect everything, and then natural gas? I mean, first on the last one, I would just say sort of guilty as charged. I think I've been talking about oil and gas companies the whole time I've been up here. Um, and there is definitely a difference. And even within the major companies, as you know, some of them are shifting their strategy very radically away from oil and to gas. Um, but uh, we have a report about oil and gas industry engagement on climate change. So that's sort of the, the context. But I think it's a fair point. There's a secondary conversation, which is about whether or not gas really is the bridge fuel or not. And I think those who are the most concerned about climate change um, would argue, or uh, I just say the most ardent environmentalists would argue that it is not uh, a bridge fuel and that, that that's not actually productive. Um, but I think that's open for debate um, for sure. Um, on the 120 versus $20 oil shift, that's a great question. I honestly can't really answer for what I think um, how oil company behavior would shift. I can only talk maybe a little bit about what we've seen in the um, investment in clean energy from other folks, uh, namely the venture capital community. The greatest boom of venture capital investment in clean energy occurred when oil went up over $150 a barrel. Um, and even though the Silicon Valley folks will tell you they invest on a 10-year time frame, that is uh, that may be true, but let's just put it this way. Uh, they got very excited about very high oil prices. And, um, and in, frankly, it was nonsensical in the sense that a lot of the money went into like solar companies, which make you know, power generation, don't make alternative fuels. A lot of it did also go into some, some interesting biofuel startups and then disappeared. So, um, so we have definitely seen some irrational exuberance investing in clean energy in the past. I can't speak to whether or not oil companies would be a little more sober in their investing uh, under such circumstances. I'm shocked. Irrational exuberance in Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah, I've crazy, huh? <laughs> Um, not a whole lot to add, except I think it ties into both profitability and looking at natural gas versus oil. I think for all investments, it's really important to look at how, how their carbon profile is going to look in the future when you're making capital investments. That has to be part of the decision process, and, and it really isn't now, and so whatever the resource, that that, that should be a consideration. I think... Um fine point about oil and gas. I mean, oil and gas are both about the subsurface, and so I think the skill sets are going to travel together. And my guess is, you, uh, much as you want to call this just the gas industry, it's going to be called the oil and gas industry. I think the jury is out as to whether gas is going to be a cul-de-sac or a bridge. Um, what we've seen so far is where gas is tight 
and it's competing tight in the meaning the, the not a lot of methane leakage, and it's competing with coal as gas contributes to shallow decarbonization. But what matters for climate is deep decarbonization. And so if you have gas plants with the alum cycle or you have gas infrastructures that are transporting renewable methane, I'm skeptical about scalability of renewable methane and a lot of hydrogen, then, then the get what we might call the gas industry today is going to be part of the solution. The jury's out on that, and I think we haven't actually seen this be, be demonstrated. Profitability of the industry, I, um, yeah, it was interesting to watch Silicon Valley flood into the energy business because yeah, they have a 10-year horizon that's updated quarterly, <laughs> and, uh, and they lost a ton of money doing a bunch of projects not understanding the underlying nature of this industry. My guess is that the industry overall is more focused on this problem when it's, being, when it's forced to be leaner. When you can deploy capital, it's really important to look inside the way the companies operate. When you can deploy capital inside the company and get super normal returns on $120 liquid prices, you're going to deploy capital to liquid. If you have to deploy capital and the liquid's going to be competing with decarbonization projects and so on, I think it makes it easier. So I think much as the people in the industry will hate me for saying this, um, I think, I think um, some starvation is helpful for, for focusing, focusing the mind here. And then the last point is about the NOCs. Um, I think, if I could just push back a little bit, although the industry is not highly concentrated, and OGC I like to say they're only a third of the global total, you cover now all the firms, almost all the firms, that are the big players in the markets where the threats are most existential. So that's actually, that's 100% market share. And so that's, I think, what matters here. And what you're doing, if you're successful, is you're, you're redefining basic business practices. You're redefining what it means to be an oil and gas company, or just a gas company, that, um, that is seriously engaged with decarbonization. You're showing how hydrogen works. You're showing how CCS works. And then it doesn't make it free for the rest of the world, but it makes it much easier to organize policy around that and makes the followership problem a lot easier to solve because of the demonstration by the leadership. So I think it's a little bit of a cop-out to point to all the other players out there because they're operating in markets. Saudi Arabia is not like a groundswell of concern about climate change in Saudi Arabia, to my knowledge. I mean, maybe there is. Um, uh, and, 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 and Aramco is one of your, one of your member companies. Uh, you've, got, you, you've got all these other NOCs out there that are in different markets where they are never going to be the leader for this problem, whereas your Western companies are in the markets that are forcing them to be leaders, and I think that's, that's a huge advantage to the organization. Yeah, I'll just add one quick, that's a really good point, which is that um, you know, in developing countries, we still have whatever it is, 800, to a billion, 800 million to a billion people or more who have lack energy access. So what's going to be the first way that they get online? Is it going to be a diesel generator, or is it going to be a, a photovoltaic um, you know, mini-grid or some other system? And, and, um, and national oil companies are very, can be very involved in thinking about those kinds of conversations. So I think there is a, a role, particularly in developing countries, for them to be real leaders on this. Just to add on that point, I mean, I think that we think about it in two different ways. One is expansion into sort of the national oil company SOE realm that's not currently included in the mix. And I think on that level, there's even another sort of substrate you have to divide them into, right, which is the ones that are completely insulated from any competitive pressure whatsoever, even with regard to, like, typical oil markets, right? They produce because they're told to produce, and that's what happens, and they eat their losses in different financial ways. And so I think that that's one sort of 
if, if they're not broadly interested in whether or not they're competitive anyway, then this is going to be a hard thing for them to sort of get involved in. And quite frankly, it's going to be a hard thing to try and get them to stop producing if you were in a deeply decarbonized environment too, which is a whole other sort of set of problems. And then there's along the value chain within the industry. And I think actually this is a place where uh, we at least encounter from our tradition of working with lots of different oil and gas companies on a whole bunch of different kinds of issues. Lots of people trying to think about what this means for them if they're just a pure play gas company or if they're a service company. Or, so there's a lot of strategic thinking about what that means and at least being able to sort of articulate what it means to be um, not just a good corporate steward. I, you know, when, when I have good corporate steward conversations, I put it in one part of my brain. When I have how do I be strategic and competitive? I sort of put it in a different part of my brain because I think those are different things in this. And so I think that if you can start to see competitiveness lines of sight in how companies are talking about this, I think it, it can be pretty helpful um, to the entire dynamic uh, as well. Um, we, we've reached 1.30. I know there's a lot more questions, so hopefully we'll be able to um, have more discussion after the event concludes. Um, I just want to say you know, thanks to our panelists for engaging and my colleague Stephen uh, Namoli uh, for, for leading the research with me and, and, and uh, putting out the report. We um, are going to keep talking about this. We've had a, a climate change and national and corporate interest series for over two years where we try and talk with companies and governments about why they think doing this stuff is actually in their interest just to sort of suss out where people are actually seeing opportunity. Um, and really pleased to have uh, the support of J.P. Morgan who you know funds some of this work that we're doing uh, to do a series on um, uh, something we're calling a climate solution series. Um, just very quickly, we'll put out more information about this, but part of this project and engaging on this has, has taught us that it's really not about these sort of broad characterizations of who's involved or not involved. It's really a question of how we approach decarbonizing different sectors of the economy and how policy and companies are kind of working together to achieve some of those things. So we hope to bring you sort of more programming at the intersection of how this change occurs over the course of the next year. So please um, stay tuned for that. But for the time being, please uh, join me in thanking my colleagues for being here today. Thank you. Thank you.